0: So this morning, as I said, we celebrate our constitution to Porheri, and the Pew Sheet has a little bit about what Poor Porheri means and where it comes from. Why would we want to do that? Well, both our constitutions have been quite radical affairs. The first one, signed in 1857, caused a whole lot of debate and stir back in the Mother Church, There were a whole lot of bishops there who were quite stunned by the concept that they would have to share some of their authority and decision making with mere clergy and laity. And this was not a concept that happened in the Church of England until very recently. Now, we who have grown up with this constitution, with this way of making decisions, are quite used to it and we think, well, that's how life should be. We take it for granted. And when bishops in other parts of the world say, well, this group of bishops should be making all the decisions and everyone else should follow them, churches like ours go, not a chance. We're not going to trust those purple-dressed people to make all the decisions. Thank you very much. And that's because our Constitution in 1857 was a radical affair. There were only two other churches, Anglican churches, with anything like that the Episcopal Church of Scotland and the Episcopal Church of the United States of America. And I think Selwyn pushed the envelope in what he did. And then again, our new constitution in 1992 caused an equal stir and still causes a stir around the world. It is a lot of fun going to international Anglican meetings and starting off your presentation on this church by explaining how our constitution works which immediately leads to lots of people pressing their eyebrows closely together and looking very worried. So we are continuing to be world leaders in how we organise ourselves. And that is something that we celebrate today. Now last year I talked at length, I'm sure, at the history uh, of our church and how we got to the point of our new constitution Today I want to talk about one of the central poles around which that constitution is built and that is the Treaty of Waitangi. In 18... 18 in 1984, Te Pio Patanga o Aotearoa came to General Synod and they said, we think the treaty should play an important role in the life of the Anglican Church and it currently doesn't so we would like a commission set up so that we can explore this. The General Synod agreed to that, and uh, a small commission was set up. It had eminent people on it, like uh, Bishop Brian Davis, who was to be our Archbishop a few years later, uh, Bishop Manu Bennett, uh, Whata Winiata, and uh, John, I think it's John Toll, who was then the Chancellor of the Auckland Diocese. And they put out a discussion paper and uh, then they uh, went around the country and held meetings in Hui and got people's response to that discussion paper and then they wrote their response uh, based on those, their final report. And their final report was this, Te Kaukapa Te Rua, uh, Bicultural Development. And this was uh, an amazing piece of literature and it's a very interesting thing to read. And they basically said that the treaty does have a place in the life of the Anglican Church that we should uh, organise ourselves according to those principles, and the primary principle was bicultural development or bicultural partnership, and partnership is one of the key principles of the treaty. And that was presented in 1986, and I was there on the day that it was presented. A group of us went down from St. John's Theological College, and it uh, was just down the road at Ohunemutu. And it was a grand occasion, uh, there was lots of applause, uh, there was lots of uh, apologies from the Parker delegates who had been there and had said in the past that Māori Tepeokitanga couldn't have representation on General Synod and had blocked all kinds of moves and they apologised for that and that was all good. And then a new, con- new commission was set up to come up with some ideas about how the constitution could be reframed. And they brought those proposals back in 1988 uh, and then the debate began. And I'll talk a bit more about that debate in a minute. So how did they come up with this amazing idea that a document that was signed in 1840, that a whole lot of people in the Anglican Church and some people in this church think should be confined to the dustbin of history, how did that... Document being named as a central pole in our constitution and in the way we see ourselves as an Anglican Church. Well, there are a number of answers to that. The first is it's ours. Without us, there wouldn't have been a Treaty of Waitangi. In the late 1830s, the missionaries were growing increasingly unhappy at the way that large groups of settlers were behaving. Russell had become a den of iniquity. In the early days when settlers came, they lived under the rule of the Maori chiefs, but once they grew too many, they kind of lived according to their own rules, which was pretty lawless, really. And they were deeply concerned that the New Zealand Company was buying up land in Wellington and that there were large numbers of settlers on their way to this country. And they were concerned because, let's face it, where large numbers of British settlers went, it all went pear-shaped for local inhabitants. They lost their land, they were impoverished, they died in large numbers due to the diseases that were brought. We only had to look at the history of Australia and North America to see what their concern was. British settlers coming to any country was not good news for those who already lived there. And so they worked with a group of Christians, Anglicans in England uh, who worked with the government to find ways of uh, limiting the impact of this large number of settlers. And the treaty was the way that they decided was the way to go forward. So, Hobson was sent out here, and the missionaries played a significant role in what happened after that. They helped call the meeting at Waitangi on the 5th of February. Uh, Henry Williams, who was the head missionary, and his son Edward translated the draft text of the treaty into Māori, and they drafted it into Biblical Māori. The Māori that had been developed in the translation of the Gospels in particular, and that was important. Uh, They then uh, argued for Māori to sign it on the 5th of February at the Hui, and oversaw the signing of it on the 6th. The missionary, Palenzo then made copies of the treaty. He was a printer, and those copies were taken around the country mostly by Anglican missionaries. Who then persuaded significant numbers of other Māori chiefs to sign it? We were right at the heart of the formulation and of the signing of this document. It is ours. And because of that, Sir James Henry, in 1981, at the commemorations for the treaty in Waitangi, said to Bishop Paul Reeves The treaty is yours. It is up to you to make sure that it works. That is still the attitude of a lot of Māori today. You created it, you make it work. So that was the first reason that uh, the Commission decided that it needed to be a part of our life together. The second reason was, and this word has already appeared in our colleagues this morning, because of the use of biblical and because of the way that the missionaries uh, argued for the signing of the treaty Māori understood this to be a covenant Now we as Christians know what a covenant is A covenant is a sacred agreement between two parties that is not easily got out of Most of our covenants are between us and God and even when we want to get out of them God is pretty staunch in no, this is the covenant. These are the terms of the agreement. And so for Māori, when they signed this, they understood this to be a sacred covenant between them and the crown, or the inheritors of the responsibilities of the crown. And because of that, there is no question for them that the treaty can be placed to one side. It is a covenant, it is there. We have to make it work. Now, this covenant wasn't between the British government and a whole lot of disparate Maori chiefs. Fundamentally, it was a covenant between two sovereign nations. How does that happen? Well, in 1835, Jane Busby was a little bit concerned about a crazy Frenchman up north... And so he thought the way, to who wanted to annex the Hokianga and make it into his own little personal kingdom. And so he thought the best way around that was if New Zealand was declared a sovereign nation. And so he got all the tribes of the uh, upper North Island to sign a Declaration of Independence and to form the Confederation of United Tribes. And that Declaration of Independence was... Uh, ratified, recognised by the British government in 1836, and from that point on, we became an independent country. And our first flag, which was also recognised by the British government, is the flag of the Confederation of United Tribes. Now, that meant, and this is the third part of, uh, or another part of, the, of what the treaty means, Uh, that the British government had no authority to act in this country. Even when they didn't like what Māori were doing, or more importantly, when they didn't like what settlers were doing, because New Zealand had been recognised as an independent, sovereign nation, they could do nothing. So that leads us to why the treaty was formed. For them to be able to limit the activities of the settlers, the British Crown needed to have authority to act in this country. And the only way they could do that was if the Declaration of Independence was rescinded and Māori came under the authority of the British government. So the treaty was the, the negotiation of the terms of that. So it was the rescinding of the Declaration of Independence. And Māori understood that by doing that and by signing the treaty, they were welcoming settlers to come and live here. They were opening the door and saying, come, but these are the terms by which you come. And the terms by which you come are that you will be subjects of British law Māori are not named as subjects of British law. They are guaranteed their rights and privileges as British subjects. The settlers would be subject to British law and Māori would continue to have authority over their own affairs just as, and this is where the Biblical Māori came into it, just as the Roman governor, the kāwanata, had authority over what happened in Jerusalem and Judah, but left it up to the local rulers to rule their own affairs. That was exactly how Māori understood it would happen here. There would be a British governor. He would be responsible for all things that pertained to the settlers, and Māori would continue to be responsible for all things Māori. And in that way, the missionaries and Māori and the British government hoped that Māori and settlers could live side by side, each benefiting the other. Now, one of the consequences of this is that all of us who are non-Māori are here because of the treaty. A few years ago, a young Māori man said to me that I should just go home, and I said to him, Well, there are two problems with that. The first is, my family's lived in this country for 150 years, and this is my home, and I'm not welcome anywhere else. And secondly, through the treaty, you said, this could be my home. And so, this is my home. And he said, fair enough. Honour the treaty then. And I went, fair enough. Now that's where the commission got to that this was a sacred covenant, that the Anglicans had been at the heart of that covenant, and that through that covenant, all of us who were settlers, later settlers, non-Māori, had been allowed to come, to have been allowed to make it our home, but the terms of that were contained in the treaty. And so, as an Anglican church, because of our special role in that, we had to be some of the prime movers in making it work. And if we really want to make it work, the first place we have to start is our own house. We have to think about whether our house was built on sand or rock. And they decided it was a bit sandy and they needed to move it onto rock. Well, that was all very well and good, and everyone could agree with that mostly. There were a few that didn't. But then the real debate started, and that was, so how do we structure ourselves that makes the treaty one of the central pole? And that was a pretty heated time, and some of you may have even been part of those debates as I was. And one of the passages that was used a lot in those debates was the passage we heard in our sentence this morning, Paul's letter to the Galatians, about there no longer being uh, Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And one side said, that means that we should all be one and we should all be the same. All those differences are smudged out. And others of us said, actually, that's not what Paul is saying. Jews didn't stop being Jews, Gentiles didn't stop being Gentiles. I'm pretty sure it's hard to stop being a male and female. And slaves continued to be slaves, and frees continued to be free. Paul was arguing that we base who we are not on all being the same, but on something else. Now he was writing for churches that were also going through some pretty heated debates. Debates that were struggling with how do we be one. And the Jewish Christians had a pretty simple answer. You just all become Jews, like us. Get circumcised, observe the Mosaic law, and we will all be hunky-dory. We'll all be one, we'll all be the same, and that'll be just the way it should be. And that's how the book of Galatians starts off. With Paul having a go at Peter, who came from the church in Jerusalem, to argue exactly that. And Paul, the Pharisee, said that is not how we should be one. Jew should stay as Jew even as a Christian and Gentile should stay as Christian even as a Christian. What we have to work out is on what grounds we will be one while staying Jew and and Gentile. How can we meet together together? when our laws and our customs and our cultures are so very different. And that was the issue that he was struggling with in nearly every single one of his letters, in a church struggling to hold itself together with these huge forces trying to pull it apart. And his argument was that it wasn't culture that was was gonna hold us together, and it wasn't language that was gonna hold us together. It was love. When we see the other as beloved of God and when we treat the other as beloved of God and when we serve the other as beloved of God then we will truly be one. Now he understood that was pretty difficult. That it was very difficult for Jewish Christians to see Gentile Christians as beloved of God. And it was pretty difficult for Gentile Christians to do it the other way as well. I mean, just imagine the dynamics when they met together with slave and their master in the same room, and the slave is not supposed to be serving the master in that environment, but are equals. Male and females, well, they're not equal, but in that environment, they were equals. Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian in the same room gathered around the Lord's table. It was hugely problematic, and Paul was the one that was trying to find a way through here where they could remain who they were but still be one. And so out of the similar kind of arguments we came up with our Constitution. A Constitution that is built around the Treaty of Waitangi but also built on love. When it was formulated was formulated with an understanding that no one culture was important more important than any other, that no language was more important than any other. It recognized the fact that for actually many in our church, English is not their first language. And in fact, for many in our church, English isn't even a language they do particularly well. That our way of doing things, of making decisions, and ordering our life, does not fit well in a Māori cultural context or in a Pacific cultural context. We tried to build a church that recognises and honours all cultures and all languages, and allows the gospel to speak and to critique those cultures. Is it perfect? Nope, not by a long shot. There are a lot of ways it fails to do that. Do we live it out well? No. I get really frustrated with most of the leadership in the church. I get tired of hearing how it's a new thing and how we need to let it bed in for a while. And I point out that now it's 21 years ago since it was instituted. You'd kind of think after 21 years we'd have a pretty good idea about how to do it. But no, it's still new. And we're still trying to work out how to do it. And my frustration really was that all the young people I were working with had never known the previous church. The three Tikanga churches, all they've ever known. They live it out pretty well, really. And they get frustrated that they have to wait around while their elders work out what it means. And it's going to take a long time still, unfortunately, because a lot of the hurts of the past are still there and they still colour the relationships between us. But that doesn't mean we should give up on it. Is God at work in it? Yes. God is at work in it. Leading us to discover how to be church. Honouring all those differences. And so today we celebrate to Heddy. And I hope we hear the invitation to seek to live it out more fully. To work in partnership with our tikanga Māori brothers and sisters. To have the grace to learn how to love God through them. To seek to serve them. To honour and love them. And to support them in their ministry among Māori in Tauranga Moana. Which is the dream that sits behind our constitution. So in light of all of that... We are now going to stand, and we are going to do haitiunga fokapouno, which is in one of the pages of your books. And I would tell you if I knew. <clears throat> Four eight one. Well, I do know. Four eight one. Can somebody turn off the heater?